My name's Helen Roebuck. I am a forensic biologist. I work for Independent Forensic Services. This is actually my colleague Jay here, who happened to be in the city today, so she's come along to critique my presentation skills. Uh, <laughs> might have to ply her with some wine afterwards. Um, I'm here to. Yeah. I'm here today. We've got a one-hour session, so it will be a little bit rapid fire. Um, but I'm here to give you not only one CPD point, because I know most of you probably want to get that ticked off. Um, I'm here to give you a bit of a brief overview into the basics of DNA analysis um, and interpretation, and just some of the issues that we see surrounding DNA evidence um, today with current technologies. Oh, gosh. Broken it already. <laughs> oh, there we go. Um, so... Some of you in the room may have dealt with DNA evidence recently, may feel you're quite up to date, but just to make sure that everybody's um, kind of on the same page, we'll recap through a few little um, revision points on DNA evidence and DNA in general. So DNA, it's a chemical, it's present in nearly all cells in the human body. So except for red blood cells, it's in every single cell in your body. You've got about 30 trillion cells, so a huge amount of DNA present. Um, it's not in red blood cells, but blood itself does contain DNA, and most of you will know that it's a very blood is a very frequently encountered biological material at crime scenes, and of course we can yield a profile. It's just that the DNA profile comes from the white blood cells. DNA is made up um, of a series of chemical bases known as adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine, or A, G, C, and T, as we commonly refer to them. Um, and it's actually the sequence of this code in the DNA molecule, um, or that code forms the genetic code and is the building block for life. So you'll often hear about DNA being talked about as the blueprint for life, and that's because this code tells the cells how to function, um, what they should be doing, what they should be making. The whole genetic code actually comprises of about 3 billion bases, so it's, it's immense, it's really large. Um, in terms of the number of base pairs it contains, yet your cells are absolutely minuscule. So in order to fit inside those cells, the DNA is actually tightly coiled into what we call a double helix um, or like a ladder structure. And that's what people will commonly associate as the image or the picture for DNA. Now, once it's coiled, it's actually then paired into 23 pairs of chromosomes to further order it within the cell. DNA within your body, it's the same regardless of which cell it's in. So the DNA in your blood will match the DNA in your saliva or your hair or wherever it comes from. So when we DNA profile two types of biological material from the same individual, they should give the same profile. Your DNA is inherited from your mum and your dad. So you get half from mum, half from dad. And actually in those chromosome pairs, the 23 pairs, one of each pair will be from your mum, one is from your dad. That said, when DNA is inherited from your mother and your father, it recombines and it's all kind of mashed up. And because of the way it recombines, um, it means that siblings won't share the exact same DNA. Do we have a question there? I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm just trying to understand the, how the chromosomes, is it like the three billion bases are divided into 23 sections? Effectively, yes, for simplicity, yeah. So it's just a way of chopping it up um, and storing it in some form of order within the cell. Um, if it doesn't matter, it doesn't yeah, matter. It's, it's really not, yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, 
uh, we could end up in a whole conversation about um, genetics. Um, so when the DNA recombines, as it's inherited from your mother and your father, um, it can give you um, different patterns, such that siblings will have differing DNA profiles. So between two siblings, you would expect about around 50% of the DNA to be shared, but it can be lower and it can be higher. And what that means is that individuals all have different um, genomes or genetic codes apart from in identical twins. Identical twins would be the only example where the two individuals would share the same standard DNA profile. Now there is one caveat to that and that is that lots of scientists have been looking at identical twins to see if they can find differences and there are actually some tests mainly coming out of Europe where they can differentiate between identical twins but for the purposes of the standard testing that you'll see in Australia, that's not possible. If you have a case with identical twins and it's really pertinent to the case and you want to do some more work, you're going to have to invest some time and money into looking um, overseas for some help with that. Lots of money. Lots of money, yeah. We've looked at it before. It's thousands, thousands and thousands. Um, so really, the key point is your DNA, so your entire genetic code is unique to you. Unless you're an identical twin, it's unique to you and what makes you an individual. But in forensic DNA analysis, we are not analyzing the entire genetic code within a person. We only look at a really, really minuscule portion of the DNA. Um, and therefore, when we get two matching profiles, we can't be certain that the DNA is from that individual. There could be other individuals that match by chance. So when we obtain matching DNA profiles, we're required to do a statistical analysis, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. The most commonly used system in Australia is something called PowerPlex 21. Those of you who have dealt with DNA in the past may have heard of something called Profiler Plus. This is a newer technology, PowerPlex 21. Um, Profiler Plus looked at nine areas of the DNA molecule. PowerPlex 21 is now looking at 21 areas. The clue is in the name. Um, and these areas, PowerPlex and um, Profiler Plus, they're based on the same um, methodology. They're looking at short tandem repeats, or STRs. And all an STR is, is simply a portion in the genetic code where we know the sequence repeats itself over and over again. So there's a simple example on the screen for you where we have, um, we have a genetic code there and you can see that we have GATA repeated over and over again. Now if we look at my DNA at that location, somebody else's DNA in the room at that location, we will both have GATA repeating over and over again. The difference may be that the number of times it repeats varies. So this example on the screen, you've got GATA repeating eight times. And in forensic DNA analysis, that's all we're looking at. We don't even really care what the code is. All we care about is how many times does that sequence repeat itself. And that's how we discriminate between individuals. So here on the screen, we've got an example of four different participants. And we've measured how many times that sequence repeats. So participant one has it repeating eight times. Two and three have it repeating nine times. And participant four has it repeating ten times. So you can see if you compared participant one and participant two, there is a variation. One has eight repeats and one has nine repeats. So we could differentiate between those two individuals just at that one area of the DNA. But if we were comparing participant two and participant three, 
they both have the same number of repeats. They have nine repeats. So at this location, we would not be able to differentiate between those two people. And that's why we look at multiple areas of the DNA profile. So by looking at 21 areas, it's highly unlikely that we're going to, by chance, get the same number of repeat units at every area between two individuals. So that's really the important thing to think about, is that we're not looking at genetic code. Therefore, we can't actually tell you anything about appearance um, or ethnicity or that kind of thing of an individual. We are simply measuring the number of repeat units. And as you recall, the DNA is tightly packaged into the chromosomes with one of mum, one from mum and one from dad. And when we're measuring the areas of the DNA, we take a pair of chromosomes, we look at a specific area on each of the two chromosomes. So it's the same area on each chromosome. And we simply measure the number of repeats at that area, or the short tandem repeats. So on the screen at the moment, you've got two chromosomes in a pair. The one on the left, we measure the area, we've got six repeats. The one on the right, we've got eight repeats. And with the DNA profile, all we simply do is, we're not going to go through the process, but we have um, software that will convert that measurement into a peak on a chart. So at the bottom, you have two peaks. One is labeled a six, and one is labeled an eight. Simply reflects the six repeats and the eight repeats. And you'll see soon that this is really what we're looking at when we look at a DNA profile when it's completed. So this example is termed a heterozygote um, result because we have two differing um, numbers. So a six coming from one parent and an eight coming from the other. That's in comparison to when we measure the area on two chromosomes and we get the same number of repeats on both chromosomes. So mum and dad actually have the same number of repeats. It's been passed down to the child. Um, so we're measuring six twice, six on the left chromosome and six on the right. The software generates one peak with a six underneath, but what's significant to note is that here we have, it's quite hard to see on two different screens, but here we have two peaks, they're similar height, they're quite low. On the second slide, because we have six measured twice, it is double the height. So this is termed a homozygote designation. We've got two lots of six and the peak should be much higher um, because it's quantitative and it's showing us that it's a double dose. Now when that's converted, when we do our testing at 21 different areas, what we end up with is what we would call a DNA profile. And some of you in the room and on the webinar may have seen a DNA profile before. Um, but just to recap, it wouldn't actually have the red boxes on. The red boxes are simply to flag for you where the 21 areas are. Now, the key points on the DNA profile for you to just take note of are the grey boxes along the top. In there, it's probably quite difficult to read in the room, but there are a series of letters and numbers in the grey boxes, and they simply donate, um, indicating where... Um, which chromosome and where on that chromosome we've targeted. As lawyers, that's not really particularly relevant, but it can um, be helpful if you're trying to communicate with an expert, if you're challenging them or questioning them in the witness box and you want them to talk about something you're seeing in the file, um, you might want to point them to the location on the DNA profile. Um, for scientists, it's quite important to know which chromosomes are being tested, but we won't go into that too much for you. The other things to note are at the top left, there is a designation X and Y. Many of you will probably be familiar with the concept that um, males have an X and Y chromosome, females have an X and X chromosome. So that area we're testing there is known as amelogenin. 
And that's really the only area that gives us some indication about the outward appearance of an individual. So here we've got an X and a Y, so this must be from a male. There are a few exceptions to that, but again, probably a little bit too detailed for this, um, this presentation. Now, other things to look at is you'll see in some of the red boxes you have two peaks, so you're seeing your heterozygote designations, and in some you're seeing just one peak. Um, particularly down um, at the right-hand side, the black peaks, you'll see there are two that are individual peaks, and you can see quite clearly they're much taller than the other peaks that are paired um, together. So that's showing you that you have a double dose. Now this DNA profile um, is what we term a single source DNA profile. So it originates from one individual. And really the main reason we know that is we only ever have a maximum of two peaks at any one area. So one from mum, one from dad. If we were seeing more than two peaks, we would know automatically that that must originate from more than one person. So this is typically what we would see from a reference sample taken from a person of interest. It's a swab from inside the cheek. It's not mixed with anything else. This is what we would expect to see. Now, unfortunately, that's not typically what we see from crime scene samples. Oh, actually, sorry, I'll just do this slide first. Um, this is just showing you a single source comparison. So you'll see on the left-hand side, you have a person of interest sample. And on the right-hand side, you have um, a sample from a crime scene. And when it's a single source profile from your crime scene, it's very easy to just cross-reference the two profiles and determine whether they match simply by looking at whether the two sets of numbers match. So in this case, all of the numbers match. Therefore, that person could be the donor of that crime scene sample. Of note, if just one of those peaks didn't match, that would be a mismatch, and that would completely exclude that individual in this case where we have a nice, clean, single profile. It's not a case of multiple have to mismatch, just one. Um, coincidentally, we don't see that too often now because we're looking at so many areas of the DNA. When we only looked at nine, we would sometimes see just one mismatch. Um, but now that we have 21, we tend to be able to exclude people very easily if they're not the donor. Now, those single source profiles we typically only see now when it's a reference sample from a person of interest. What we see a large amount of are mixed DNA profiles. And a mixed DNA profile is the terminology that we simply use when we've got a sample that originates from more than one individual. And when you look at that profile, you should be able to see very quickly that there are more than two peaks of DNA at many of those areas tested. And it just it has a far more complex appearance. In these cases, we don't have a single string of numbers to compare, so we can't just line that up with the reference sample and see if the peaks match. As scientists, we have to look at the number of peaks present um, and make a determination about how many people we think are in there. And then we have to go one step further and think about all of the possible combinations of DNA that could explain this DNA profile. So it becomes a much more labor-intensive um, process for us to complete. Now, the number of contributors is quite important. One thing for you to understand is that Determining how many people have contributed to a DNA profile is not black and white. Um, it's a very subjective process. And that's because we don't know whether the person contributing is a heterozygote or a homozygote. So we can look at an area of the DNA being tested. We can count the number of peaks. And generally what we do is just assume that 
all people contributing are heterozygote and, and donating two peaks. So we would look at this profile and say, we have no more than four peaks at any of the areas tested. Therefore, there are a minimum of two people contributing. But there could be three or there could be four. Um, we can't be sure. We can only determine minimum. And there's not really any, well, there is no answer to that problem as it stands currently. This profile I know is two-person because it's a control profile that was created. Um, so in terms of working out the combinations in a mixed DNA profile, we simply work across the DNA profile. This example um, on the top left, we're looking at the 14, 15 and 16 designation. And firstly, we start by just going through and working out logically in a pairwise fashion, what could be the numerical designations of the two contributors. So we would say if person one is a 14, 15, person two could be a 15, 16. And we'd work through if person one was 14, 16, person two could be 15, 16. And it's just a case of pairing the numbers and working through in a stepwise fashion. So you can see we've got quite a big list of possible combinations. And this is just a two person mixture. If this was three, four, five person, that list would be off the wall and round the room. It would start to get really extensive. Once we've made a determination numerically of the possible combinations, we then go through and we look at whether there's any biological support for that. So we look at things simply like how the profile is balancing. So we expect the heterozygote peaks to balance equally and we expect homozygote peaks to be double the height. So we start to factor in all of those biological issues too. And we might go through this list and cross them out and say, okay, biologically, that is not a reasonable combination of DNA. So you can see that starts to get quite intensive um, and, and is far more complex than those single source profiles. And I think the key is to remember that most of the samples we're dealing with now will have that mixed DNA profile interpretation required. And you'll see with the statistical analyses why that becomes an issue. So once we have a DNA match, remember we're not looking at the entire code, therefore we can't say that person did it or that person donated the blood. We have to think about um, whether the DNA could be from, well, the DNA could be from somebody else and we need to think about the statistical analyses of that and we need to present to the court um, some form of statistical analyses that will help them, help them understand the result they're being presented with. And there are two types of calculations you'll see. Um, a match probability, or in Australia it tends to be called a frequency estimate. I slip back into my English a lot and match probability, Jay tells me off all the time. Match probability is very English, um, as is data, but I will never say data. <laughs> Um, so you'll see a match probability or frequency estimate, or you'll see a likelihood ratio. In Australia, they are typically the agreed two methodologies for statistical anal analysis of DNA evidence. If you read books that are written in the US, you will see other analysis methods, but they are pretty much outruled. Um, in Australia, we don't use those. So put simply, the frequency estimate is um, really a way of answering the question that the court want to know the answer to, which is what is the probability of somebody other than the defendant or the person of interest having this DNA profile? So yes, it could be him, but what is the chance that it could be somebody else or somebody else could have that profile? So it's a fairly simple question. 
And the statistics behind the calculation are actually relatively simple once you've been taught to do them and had, had a few goes at doing them. And really all we do is we use a database of DNA profiles to work out the frequency of the DNA profile we're seeing. So we simply look at how common the DNA profile is. And to give you an indication, in Australia, when we get a full PowerPlex 21 DNA profile that matches, so much testing has been done and so much statistical analysis has been done that we can be confident that the frequency of that full matching profile or any full matching profile is fewer than one in 100 billion. So when we get that full DNA match, we only expect to see that profile in fewer than one in 100 billion individuals in the Australian population. So those full DNA matches are incredibly powerful. Um, and as you can imagine, in a population of 22 million, that carries quite a lot of weight in the court because we really have a low expectation of seeing that DNA profile again. Um, something important to think about is this is an estimate and we can't say there is nobody else. We can't say that just because there are only 22 million people in Australia and we only expect to see this in fewer than one in 100 billion, we can't say that no one else has it, but this gives, gives an indication of the expectation. Now, the way you will see frequency estimates reported in forensic DNA reports um, is listed on the, street, on the screen. Um, but generally, it'll be some, something like this, where they say the DNA profile recovered is the same as the profile of Mr. Smith. And this profile is estimated to occur in fewer than one in 100 billion unrelated individuals in the general population. So that's quite a powerful statement. One thing to really think about is that word unrelated. So if you think back to the very beginning of the presentation, whilst siblings don't have the same DNA and whilst relatives don't necessarily have the same DNA, there is a much higher chance that they will share large portions of their DNA. So when we do our general calculation, we're only considering unrelated individuals. Um, and that's typically what would be done in a case unless we were given specific instruction that we need to consider relatives. Um, now, often these days, those relative calculations are actually already done in the file. They're just not reported. So it's quite easy to challenge and question what the relative calculations would be. Um, and also any qualified DNA reporting scientists should be able to go back and, and generate those calculations for you, but they would typically only do that when there's a very specific request. Obviously, the easiest thing to do is obtain a sample from the said person uh, that you're thinking may be an alternative source. Um, you know, if you're thinking there's a brother that could be the source of the DNA, if you can obtain a reference sample from them, then you will get a black and white answer as to whether they match or don't match. But I do appreciate that's not always possible. So the likelihood ratio is a very different calculation. Um, the likelihood ratio, um, it's based on um, statistical methods that are very robust. They've been around for a long time. When we apply them to forensic science, we've chosen this method of um, statistical evaluation because it allows us to look at two different propositions, which works very well in criminal law where we're looking at a prosecution proposition and a defense proposition. So in DNA analysis, we're obviously not thinking about the overall question about whether they committed a crime or they didn't commit a crime. We're talking about a DNA profile. And these likelihood ratios lend themselves really well to mixed DNA profiles. So in this example, or the example I used earlier where I have two people in my mixed DNA profile, the prosecution 
breaking it down, they would be asking or they would be stating that the suspect and an unknown person are the two contributors to that mixed profile. And the defence would be stating that it's actually two unknown individuals and the suspect is not in there. And we can calculate, we can do a mathematical calculation um, to, to come up with a, an overall number which will indicate whether the DNA evidence supports the prosecution or supports the um, defence proposition. When you provide a written report, did you show that working? No. So the, the workings, um, if you do them manually, um, they will be quite lengthy, um, quite hard to follow. Um, so typically they won't be in um, the report. They will be in the case file, um, and anyone who wants to obviously take a look at that would be able to take a look at those and challenge those. However, we will move on in the presentation and talk about the software that's being used currently in the labs. Um, generally now they're using software um, and a lot of that paperwork again will be in the file but won't be demonstrated in the report. Um, so likelihood ratios, yes you can calculate them manually, you can do them with a calculator, you can do them in an Excel spreadsheet um, and when you're doing them that way you can generally only interpret three person mixtures at the very maximum. Um, and those likelihood ratios will be reported somewhat differently to a frequency estimate. So the kind of statement you'll see with a likelihood ratio is the DNA evidence is 100 million times more likely if Mr. Smith and an unknown person are the sources of the DNA rather than two unknown, unrelated individuals. Now I'll just pop the two up on the screen because I think it's really important to look at them side by side. So the first bold statement is the match probability. So here we're clearly talking about the frequency of this profile in the population. So the profile occurs or is estimated to occur in fewer than one in 100 billion unrelated individuals. And we can only do that for a single source DNA profile. A likelihood ratio we can do for either a single source or a mixed profile. But if you're dealing with mixed DNA, it will need to be a likelihood ratio. And that statement should clearly list two propositions. So you'll see them reported slightly differently, but this is relatively typical of what we see, uh, where they talk about 100 million times more likely if Mr. Smith and an unknown person are the sources rather than two unknown, unrelated individuals. So your prosecution proposition and your defence proposition should be laid out. And you'll even often see in reports, sometimes they will literally make it really black and white and list the prosecution proposition and list the defence proposition but it does depend on who's reporting the evidence. So in terms of DNA um, interpretation, um, those manual processes, we didn't put the calculations in the report because they were quite cumbersome. It took quite a lot of work to manually calculate. And um, also when doing those manual calculations, you started, or as an analyst, it was quite easy to invoke subjectivity and make decisions um, that perhaps another time you might not make that same decision or two analysts could be interpreting the same profile and they could be making different decisions about the DNA profile. And um, there was a lot of evidence to support the view that this subjectivity needed to be reined in and we needed to be giving more consistent results between analysts and between labs and the courts needed to be more confident that the data coming out was not based on one person's subjective opinion. And because of that subjectivity, quite a few teams around the world were working on new software developments um, to try and combat that. Um, and as a result of that work, 
a software package known as Starmix was developed by Australian and New Zealand scientists. Um, and this software has given us the ability to interpret DNA profiles that not only previously would have been too complex for interpretation, um, because we simply didn't have the ability to be able to calculate the likelihood ratio, they also cut down the time and the labor that is required for the interpretation of a DNA profile. Um, what StarMix does is it, firstly, it deconvolutes a mixed DNA profile, so it takes the profile and it works through all of those combinations. Um, it actually does around, you can set the number of iterations, but it basically it goes through hundreds of thousands of different iterations, looking at combinations and testing the data. So it does things that a human couldn't do in their lifetime. Um, it's incredibly powerful. And once it's looked at that profile and come up with possible combinations, it then calculates a likelihood ratio. So it's doing all of that analysis for us, rather than the scientist having to sit down and spend a huge amount of time doing calculations. Now, StarMix is actually one of two softwares that are commercially available. Um, there is one known as TrueAllele, which was tested in Australia, but was not taken up and generally is being used in the US predominantly. Um, so as I said, StarMix was developed here. Um, it's been in use in forensic labs um, in Australia since prior to 2014. So it's, it's a good few years now it's been in use. It was commercially made available in February 2014. And in order to calculate, to deconvolute the profile and calculate the likelihood ratio, it's using a mathematical modeling approach. So, um, as I said before, it's really doing something that a, a human does not have enough hours in their lifetime to do. And the software is designed to include all of the available information, and this is where it should remove that subjectivity. So, a DNA, DNA analyst can look at a DNA profile and they can decide, I don't like that peak, um, or I think it's this number of contributors. Um, whereas the, the software itself won't exclude peaks just because it doesn't like them. It will use all of the information built in. When you say all available information, it's still just the 21 Yeah, sites. so all of the sites that are tested, um, but it uses all of the peaks that are generated and it doesn't just blindly <coughs> exclude peaks, whereas we know analysts can be... I mean, there are sometimes legitimate reasons for removing peaks from a DNA profile um, because perhaps the analysis hasn't run quite as it should and they're artifacts of the process. Um, but we know that analysts can invoke bias into their interpretation, particularly when they've seen DNA profiles of the person of interest uh, and they know what they're looking for. It can be kind of underlying um, bias that creeps into their interpretation, whereas the software doesn't have that emotion, it doesn't have that desire to get a match, it will simply go through logically and mathematically um, and it's not making emotive decisions about the evidence. Will the software be able to pick up if there's been a bit of a stuff up in the process of extracting the information and something's gone awry so that the results yeah, look, generally before the profile goes into StarMix, an analyst will have reviewed it and should have signed it off. So they will be looking to make sure that the profile that is generated is robust. They will be looking at all the controls in the process to make sure that DNA profiling ran as it should. The, the software, if the profile itself, if there's something wrong in there, if there's a peak maybe that is an artifact and it can't deal with, generally you'll see that by the output result won't match what you expected as the analyst to obtain. Right, so I would know 
Yeah, you wouldn't know, but we would probably know. So yeah, it's technical experience that will enable you to be able to determine if there's been, uh, and we have an example actually of one later. Um, so yeah, that, the real aim of the software was just to remove that subjectivity and to allow a computer that has no emotion, no desire to make a match, to just go through the data and generate a likelihood ratio. Um, and it can do this really quite quickly. Um, a, a fairly simple mixed DNA profile will go through in a couple of hours. A more complex one may take a day or so. But bearing in mind, an analyst themselves doing it, it could take them a day or two or three days to do. And then a second person would need to peer review that because obviously when you're doing complex calculations, it's quite easy to make errors. Now this software, I should say, has been um, extensively tested and validated. The methodology behind it is very well reported and has been used in many other applications. Um, so what's lying behind it is pretty sound, well tested. Um, but there are some limitations with the application um, to the reporting of likelihood ratios in forensic science. And these are really what we want to highlight to you um, as New South Wales FAS are using StarMix on, I think, pretty much every single DNA profile that comes out of the lab now, even if it's single source. So the first limitation is that because the software is modeling and it's going through hundreds of thousands of iterations, a scientist cannot reproduce that calculation. So back 10 years ago, when somebody did a manual calculation, I could look at that, I could sit down, I could recalculate, and in theory, I should be able to regenerate the data. Um, in this case, I cannot regenerate what that computer has conducted. I, I'm not going to live long enough, unfortunately. Um, but that said, the methodology is robust, and we'll talk about some things that we can do around that. The subjective determinations that the software was designed to, to eliminate, um, in some cases it has done some of that, um, but some subjective decisions are still required before StarMix analysis. So the DNA analyst can still remove peaks from the DNA profile because that's done in a separate piece of software. Um, and I've seen that happen. Majority, I'll be honest, legitimate reasons and I had no issue with that. But the software was designed to take the whole profile and evaluate it. So I question whether they should be removing anything. Um, and the number of contributors remains a really big problem because StarMix does not know how many contributors are in that profile. StarMix needs that information because it's going to look at combinations of DNA. And the only way you can work out the combinations is if you know how many people you're looking for or assuming. Because the software can't do that, that job sits with the analyst still, yet we know that that is perhaps one of the most subjective and the most problematic steps in interpreting mixed DNA profiles. Now, the developers are looking at ways of combating that, but they're not close even at the moment, I don't think. And other research groups across Europe are looking at ways of trying to solve that problem. But it's a huge problem because there's no ground truth. We will never know how many people were in those DNA profiles. Um, and we're always going to be making an estimate. So I hope one day we can answer that question, but it's something really imperative to think about when you're looking at star mix analyses is that the analyst has conditioned the software or given the software an assumption to work with, and what if the analyst is wrong? And the third limitation, which is, I would perhaps say, the most concerning to me at the moment, whilst the software itself is invaluable, it does have a really important role in the process, this limitation is, is quite important to understand. 
and that is that the low statistical values particularly, so low likelihood ratios perhaps in the tens of thousands, they may be unreliable and that's the reason I say that is there are many papers or several papers out there that have been peer-reviewed and published um, that show that non-contributors to mixed DNA profiles can be considered to be contributors by StarMix. So I'll reiterate that and say it another way to make sure that you understood that. So StarMix can take a mixed DNA profile and we can give StarMix a non-contributor profile and say, okay, we think this person is in there and it's a controlled study, so we know they're not in there. And StarMix may come up with an answer that says that that non-contributor is in the DNA profile. And there are quite a few papers out there that um, show that results in the order of 10, 20, 30,000, even up to 100,000 um, is generated as a likelihood ratio in support for the prosecution. So they're saying it's 50,000 times more likely that this person has contributed rather than they have not, even though we know they have not. Um, and those papers, um, they're out there. The manufacturers have been involved in those papers. Scientists know about that, yet we keep seeing likelihood ratios produced in scientific reports saying that it is 20, 30, 40,000 times more likely that this person has contributed with no information in the report about the known issue with false inclusions by StarMix. Now, it doesn't only occur at those tens of thousands, we've also seen it at hundreds of thousands. I think there's one paper by the manufacturer that generated likelihood ratios of 500,000 times more likely with a non-contributor. So it's something to think about. In the majority of cases, it's probably okay, but where you have DNA evidence, and the DNA evidence is pretty much the only thing you have in the case, I would strongly suggest you question whether those low likelihood ratios are the result of a false inclusion by StarMix. Um, so yeah, really that is one way you would need to get the advice of an independent scientist to help you with that. Um, yeah. Oh, so we're talking about yeah, we're talking about likelihood ratio. So it would be a whole number. So anything above one is supporting the prosecution, and low, you know, low would be you know something kind of in the order of zero to thousands and tens of thousands is low because we can go up to a hundred billion. So our numbers go from zero to a hundred billion. So that's getting lower. No, with a likelihood ratio, it's getting higher because with a likelihood ratio, we're saying it's X times more likely. So if it's 10 times more likely, that would be lower than 100,000 times more likely. The frequency estimate goes the other way because the so frequency estimate is how many. Definite. Yeah, sorry. If you say something's only 10 times yeah. more likely, it's less reliable. Yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, weaker evidence. So just to recap, with likelihood ratios, if you're seeing numbers of thousands or tens of thousands, um, potentially even hundreds of thousands, if the DNA is the only evidence, or you know, shouldn't be the only evidence, but we do see that, the DNA evidence, if the case is hinging on DNA evidence, um, really start to think about whether there's potential that a false inclusion is happening here and whether the star mix data should be re-evaluated. Now, we talked about how um, we can't reproduce the calculations that are done by StarMix, um, but that's not necessarily a problem because we know if we conducted the analysis again, we would probably get a slightly different number because it's a modeling system and modeling systems will generally not generate the exact same number every time. So 
What we tend to recommend is that for evaluation of StarMix data, the paper output that is generated by the software at the time and is generally contained on a file, and I have to say on a FAST file, they generally would be there all the time. These can be evaluated either by another scientist at the lab or by an independent scientist. And they can be quite valuable because the paper output not only will list the parameters that were used when the software was run, the paper output will give you all of the combinations of DNA that the software considered and it will rank them in an order, um, telling you the percentage weighting for the, what it believes to be the most likely down to the least likely combination. And this has been quite valuable in many of the cases I've independently reviewed. And this is one example on the screen where the person of interest is actually the pink highlighted combination. So the 2223, which the software gives a 1.1% weighting. So it gives a really low weighting. It doesn't like that combination. And the combination at the top, the 2425, which doesn't match the person of interest, it's giving a 20.5% weighting too. And that, when you looked at every single area of the DNA tested, that was pretty much the same at every area. The software was saying, oh, the person of interest, I don't like their combination. And the um, high ranked combination did not match the person of interest. Now, with that, um, the profile itself, when you looked at the profile, intuitively it felt like the person of interest was in there. So the output number did not match um, my experience as a DNA expert. Um, so I had to look at why I thought that might be the case and why we might be getting these really strange rankings from StarMix. And in my opinion, there was just something going on with the modeling. Um, and in that case, it was actually the number of contributors. I didn't agree with the number of contributors that had been assigned by the original scientist. Um, in this case, I didn't reanalyze the data, but I did make recommendations that the number of contributors be changed and the analysis be conducted again to see if that impacts the number. Um, so there's a lot you can do from the paperwork itself. Um, and I should just say that with StarMix, um, whilst you, I would suggest you will never find an independent expert that has the software because it's prohibitively expensive. It's about $50,000 for one license. Um, what can be done now is a case-by-case -case license can be purchased if you instruct a scientist who has conducted the training with the manufacturer. So our organization, both of our principal scientists, me and Jay, have conducted that training. So we now have the ability, if we're instructed on a case, to contact the manufacturer, pay a $200 admin fee, and they will give us the software to use for that case. So where we think there's an issue with the interpretation and the lawyer would like that evidence re-evaluated, that can be done by an independent scientist. So do bear that in mind that that option is now available if you need the work reanalyzing. So DNA, and let's move away from the numbers. DNA evidence um, now has really moved into um, reporting numbers rather than looking at what the DNA evidence means. And it's very based on statistical interpretation. And I would just like to bring to your attention um, some of the other things that can be done by most forensic biologists. And FAST certainly have the ability to, to do these things and they have the expertise. Um, so a traditional forensic biologist will be an expert in biological material, so they'll be able to detect and confirm body fluids, blood, semen, saliva, feces. Um, obviously DNA profiling and interpretation of DNA profiles. 
But the final dot point is that that forensic biologist should give an opinion on the evidence. And by evidence, I mean the overall forensic biology evidence, not just the DNA evidence. And time since intercourse is an example I like to go through um, to really kind of hammer home this message. Um, so time since intercourse, as well as looking at um, DNA testing of semen in a sexual assault case, biologists can use published data and experience to determine the time since intercourse. So that is the time between, so when the sample was taken, how long prior do we think that semen was deposited? Now, in some cases, that may be completely irrelevant. In a complete stranger rape case, that really might not help the court particularly because the presence of the semen and DNA alone may answer all the questions they have. But in a case where you've got two versions of events, particularly they, you know, these two individuals may have had consensual intercourse on one occasion, but then the female is alleging that another act occurred that was non-consensual. In those cases, that time can be really important to the court and can be something that can really help the court address which version is more likely. So if we have an allegation of rape three days prior to the medical exam and we find an absolute abundance of sperm on that swab, the data says that that's not what we would expect. The data says that sperm will be degraded by the vagina, the seminal fluid will, um, we will lose it from the vagina, and what we're seeing would just not be considered in keeping with the allegation. So they're the kind of things we can do. And there's a, an example here that I'm gonna flick through quite quickly that is one that we reviewed um, a few months ago where a female, had she'd consumed a large amount of alcohol and drugs. Um, she'd gone home with the defendant that night, um, consumed more alcohol. The next day, a witness was concerned for her well-being because she hadn't shown to a family function. And the witness went to look for her, knowing that she may be with this male. She went to his house. The, she went into the property uh, where she found the defendant on top of the complainant. Um, the complainant was unconscious, effectively, clothing removed, underwear disturbed, vagina exposed, effectively looked like he had pretty much just finished having sexual intercourse with her. And this case was sent to us for review to look at the evidence. Um, and in this case, what we observed from the case file was one single spermatozoa was detected on the high vaginal smear. So to put that into um, context, you're looking at about 3 million sperm in one ejaculate from a normal male. In this case, we're only seeing one. The lab then combined the high and low vaginal swabs for DNA testing. Um, now their reasoning for that is they've only got a small amount of DNA, so let's just put the swabs in one batch and send them and hope that we get a DNA profile. The mixed DNA profile that they obtained was consistent with originating from the victim and defendant, um, but that was reported as a single spermatozoa with a DNA profile that matches the defendant, and this DNA profile is expected to occur in fewer than one in 100 billion individuals. So it seems like pretty compelling evidence. A jury being told a rape has occurred or potentially a rape has occurred will hear that evidence and one can imagine they would put a large amount of weight on that. But for me, um, whoops, for me as a scientist, there were quite a few flags in that case and it didn't quite sit as comfort comfortably with me as perhaps it did with other people. Um, the first flag being that no test for semen was conducted. So they looked at the swab and they found a sperm, but they didn't look for the fluid that sperm would be contained within in the ejaculate. Um, and 
The reason we generally do that is, again, we've got data around the seminal fluid and how seminal fluid is retained in the vagina, and it helps us with that time since intercourse. Um, it helps us determine whether it's a recent ejaculate or whether it's residual sperm. So that test wasn't done. The swab is now consumed. We can't go back. We can't do that test. The slide from the internal swab or the high vaginal swab found one sperm head. Now, our data tells us that one sperm head can remain in the vagina for around seven days. Um, so we know that when we only see one sperm head, we have to consider that, that could be from some time prior. Um, and we have to factor in that time into our evaluation. The case file itself actually did confirm information stating that this female had had recent sexual intercourse. So that information really should have been utilised. And in this case, it's really important because you have one sperm head. When we only have one sperm head or a really small number of sperm heads, typically we don't actually expect to get a DNA profile because there's too little DNA there. So in this case, you have to consider, was that sperm from some days prior and we just didn't see a DNA profile? And the DNA report itself did not contain any information about the evidence um, when considering the allegation. So for me, when you consider the evidence more holistically, one sperm head is not what I would expect if penetrative ejaculation had occurred given the time frame. Um, there are other plausible explanations for the evidence, such as the sperm is residual and we haven't obtained a profile. And remember, two swabs were combined, a high and a low vaginal swab. So we don't know where that mixed DNA profile came from, and it's entirely possible that the male's DNA profile was actually on the low vaginal swab. And that has, has some significance because there are other ways that DNA could have got there. So there could have been his DNA external on her body and she's been to the bathroom and wiped her intimate area and she's effectively transferred that DNA to the lower vaginal region. Um, but if the jury are given the information that you've got sperm and it matches the defendant and the statistic is one in a hundred million, um, I think most would be um, interpreting that evidence as support for the prosecution allegation. But in my view, they should be given this information to indicate that there are other explanations um, and a weighting should really be placed on the, on the two propositions. The key with this one is, um, I don't know how many of you in the room are familiar with the case of Farajama in Victoria. That was a very si similar situation where one sperm head led to a whole host of issues. Um, don't have time to talk about that, um, but I would suggest if you're dealing with sexual offence cases, certainly take a look at that judgment because it was, it's kind of very similar. Similar issues where contamination was really highlighted as possible cause um, for the DNA profile being obtained. So trace DNA, again, trace DNA is one of the areas that um, really causes a lot of issues um, currently in forensic DNA evidence. And the reason being that um, the sensitivity of the testing has increased significantly in the last five years. Um, you know, we used to get DNA profiles when we were looking for touch DNA we may or may not get a DNA profile. Nowadays, typically any surface you sample, you will obtain some form of DNA profile because the testing is picking up DNA that has been around for a long time and is in small amounts. So historically, trace DNA and touch DNA were used kind of, um, they were used to mean the same thing. 
And when we talk about trace DNA or touch DNA, we're just talking about DNA that's recovered from skin cells that are left behind when a person touches um, a surface. So traditionally, it was when we swab a cup to see who's held it, when we swab a knife to see who's held the handle, we would call that touch DNA. Um, and many of these are taken from crime scenes um, and used quite heavily by the police to try and determine who's been present within a location or a crime scene. Whoops. Um, nowadays, we've kind of stepped away from that touch DNA terminology, and hopefully you'll understand the reasons why. Oh, don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> um, so with trace DNA, nowadays, research supports um, the view that we can't make any conclusions about how trace DNA is deposited, um, how long it's been there. Um, we can't tell you from trace DNA who has handled the item. Um, and really important fact to note is that with trace DNA, we don't know the biological origins. So we sample, we swab a table. We don't know, there could have been some saliva there. There could have been a really minute amount of blood. But the methodology used for swabbing is just a case of take a swab and sample the area. Generally, it's not tested for any biological material. And that swab goes straight to DNA profiling and is used to generate a profile, um, really to look for identity, look who's been there. So why can't we make any of these inferences about trace DNA? 10 years ago, I'll hold my hands up. If I got a DNA profile from a, what we then called a touch DNA swab, if we got a DNA profile, I would be fairly confidently saying that it's from handling the item. But now, because the sensitivity of the testing has changed, that view has changed very much in the scientific community. So one way of thinking about it, the schematic represents it quite well, and this has come out of work done by Professor Peter Gill in Europe. Um, and this work looked at trace DNA and problems with trace DNA surrounding the case of um, a UK schoolgirl, Meredith Kircher, who was murdered in Italy, um, and an American schoolgirl, Amanda Knox, was found guilty of her murder. She was then later exonerated through work that Peter Gill did around the trace DNA evidence, which was absolutely abysmal. <laughs> um, and he's generated a lot of publications through Euro4Gens, and there's actually quite a lot online and a lot of useful information for, for lawyers around this topic. But he talks a lot about when DNA could be deposited. And the key points are that DNA could be deposited before the crime. So we've all been in this room today. I've been touching this lectern. I'm going to go away, but my DNA will remain here potentially for years. So if something subsequently happens in this room, my DNA will be detected, even though I had absolutely nothing to do with that. Um, the second option is that DNA was deposited during the crime. That's pretty obvious. That's why DNA testing even exists. Um, so we're looking for the perpetrator's DNA. And the third option is that the DNA was deposited after the crime. So that may be through um, obvious contamination, like a police officer speaking with a suspect and then entering a crime scene when they absolutely shouldn't, but we know it happens. Or that could be more innocent contamination. For example, a crime scene officer is photographing the scene and they move an item to take a photograph. Any DNA on that item can be transferred to another location in that crime scene. So we may then swab that location. That location may be really, really important, may be really significant in the allegation, but DNA that is there may have been actually transferred by crime scenes. So we have to think about the fact that DNA can be introduced after the crime and it can be moved after the crime. Now, the 
problem is that as a DNA scientist, I will not be able to tell you whether the DNA profile I have generated comes from before the crime, during the crime, or after the crime, if it is generated from a trace DNA sample. And obviously the court want to know, was that from the crime, or was it deposited at the time of the crime? Now another factor to consider is the um, possibility of transfer of DNA evidence. And this has been highlighted a lot recently, and you're, if you do reading around DNA evidence, you've probably seen cases talk about transfer of DNA. Secondary transfer and tertiary are very well reported within the scientific community, and there's been a lot of work conducted um, over the last few years to investigate how this phenomenon happens. And secondary transfer is simply where your DNA ends up on a surface via an intermediary. So, I've never touched that bottle that Jay is drinking from, but Jay and I have been in contact. She puts my DNA onto that bottle. So my DNA will be lifted from that bottle, but I never touch that item. So there's a clear example of why you can't swab an item and say that the DNA profile is deposited by handling. So in the example, the green man shakes the orange man's hand, picks up a glass. Um, we're looking at whose DNA could be on that glass. Now, with the sensitive techniques that we're using these days, we know that we could, I don't know that this is, I don't want to go over it. Um, we could detect the orange man's DNA because he's picked up the glass. We could get the green man because the orange man shook the green man's hand. We could get both their DNA. We could actually get neither, either because we've poorly sampled the item or because both of those persons just did not have a lot of DNA to transfer. We could just get somebody else because somebody else gave the glass or had previously handled the glass. And similarly with tertiary transfer, here you just add another step. So you go through a door, green man goes through a door, the orange man goes through the door at a later point in time and picks up the green man's DNA and then handles the glass. And you have the same scenario where the orange man, the green man, both neither or someone else's DNA could end up on that item which is quite terrifying to think where your DNA can end up because it isn't limited at tertiary, it can go through even more steps. And the reasons for this are, there are many complexities with secondary transfer, but there are a number of reasons that contribute to why your DNA is transferred so readily um, and also give rise to problems with interpreting trace DNA evidence. Now the first one is that um, everybody sheds DNA at a slightly different rate, so we sometimes call people good shedders and bad shedders. Um, although you're not always a good shedder, if you're a good shedder, it can change over time. Um, so I may be a really good shedder, someone else in the room may be a really bad shedder, so their DNA may not transfer as readily if I shake their hand. The substrate that you're dealing with, so um, porous items like clothing and fabrics will retain DNA much better than a shiny smooth surface. Um, factors like hand washing, some people really frequently wash their hands, which will not only keep their hands kind of free of those flaky skin cells, will also remove any other biological material they might have on their hands from themselves. Some people conversely don't ever wash their hands and carry around a huge amount of their own DNA that they transfer everywhere. Nervousness or sweating, um, we quite often get asked this because at crime scenes it's suggested that that person would have been very nervous and they would have been sweating because they're amidst an armed robbery. Um, sweat itself doesn't contain DNA, but as it's excreted through the skin, it will pick up the DNA and moisture will faci facilitate the transfer of DNA quite nicely and quite readily. Um, so if you're sweating at the time, that can often facilitate the transfer of DNA. 
And factors like habitual face touching. So if you're the person that's always touching your face and your mouth and your hair, you will generally have more DNA available to transfer on your hands. Now, we don't know as scientists any of this information. We don't know if the person we're looking for is a good shedder, a bad shedder. We don't know their behaviors. We can't go back and look at their behaviors because that time point has passed. So we can't make any prediction about how much DNA we expect to find. So when we see a really strong DNA profile, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were the last person to touch it or they handled it that day. Um, it could be that they handled it prior and they're just an incredibly good shedder of DNA. And also remember, we don't, although we do obtain profiles a lot, we sometimes don't detect DNA and that's often could just be the poor sampling technique. You know, if you're sampling a glass and you only sample half the side, don't sample the whole thing. You may just have missed where it was handled. So if we don't obtain evidence or absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So just because we don't detect somebody doesn't mean they haven't handled the item. Um, so DNA, we'll call this DNA in the real world, but DNA, we all know it's one of the most high profile forensic sciences. We get asked about it all the time. <laughs> People think it's very glamorous and there is an expectation that DNA evidence will be produced in most criminal cases. Um, people expect to see it. Um, and that DNA evidence, we, we see it time and time again, and we see it in jury studies that have been conducted by psychologists, that it's readily taken at face value, particularly by juries who don't have the ability to dissect the evidence, but also by judges and the legal community, it can often be readily accepted. But as you've just seen, your DNA can be in a room even though you've never been there. We all know that DNA alone doesn't solve crimes. Um, and DNA needs to be considered in a framework of other evidence. So you really need to look at what is the allegation and could the DNA evidence support the prosecution proposition or the defense proposition. Now for us, we, Jay and I, um, we've been operating for, I can never remember the date now, about three years and we've reviewed around 200 cases and we um, sadly see the same issues coming over and over again. And, and those issues predominantly are those ones listed on the screen. So the first one is that reporting of trace DNA. So often those trace DNA cases are reported in a very tabulated um, version of results, uh, just stating that a DNA profile matches and we expect to see this profile in fewer than you know, one in 100 billion um, or with a likelihood ratio with a large number. And there's never contextualization in that report around what that means um, and whether that person has actually been in contact with the item and the problems are not highlighted in the report. Um, often interpretation about the trace DNA evidence is um, obtained in the witness box. So when the scientist is put on the stand and they are questioned about the evidence, they will generally concede to the limitations. Um, but really that should be presented in the report. So if you have questions around trace DNA before trial, remember you can always go back to that expert and ask them to expand and provide an opinion prior to trial. And we've actually seen quite a few cases, um, yeah, that have kind of fallen down because the DNA evidence was so pertinent to the case, but once it was highlighted that that trace DNA evidence really bears little probative value, um, the case then has very little weight behind it. Um, reporting of evidence with no context, so this is the other second thing that we see um, quite a lot of. 
Um, so that sexual offence case was a really good example of that, where there are other explanations for the evidence and the court should hear those explanations. Um, and the third one is this difference in the number of contributors. So with Starmix analyses, um, we found on several occasions where we strongly disagree with the number of contributors that have been assigned and that statistical analysis required uh, or was required to be uh, reconducted with a different number of contributors. Um, and the other thing we're starting to see more are these issues around the fault, potential false inclusions, so low likelihood ratios and are those inclusions the result um, of problems with Starmics or problems with false inclusions seen through Starmics. So our little top tips of when to think about whether you need a review or just to go back to the prosecution expert and ask them more questions um, are presented here. But those low likelihood ratios, so it says lower than 10,000 on the screen, but really we're seeing anything up to 500,000. Really depends on the evidence as a whole. If it's one DNA profile that bears little significance in the case, I wouldn't worry about it too much. But if that's a DNA profile on the weapon and there's very little else to link the um, defendant to the crime, then you need to think about whether the likelihood ratio is robust. Um, reporting different likelihood ratios to the same sample. We've seen this very recently where um, there was actually an exclusion. So they ran Starmix, said it was two contributors, and it excluded the person of interest. They then ran it three, no, is that the right way around? Yeah, that's right, <laughs> three, ran it with three individuals, and it then included, and they chose to report the, so the prosecution lab chose to report the ex, the ex, uh, what am inclusion. I saying, inclusion, <laughs> sorry. Uh, they chose to report the inclusion, but actually the exclusion, um, there was support for that too. So I think it's quite obvious if you see two different results for the same profile that you need to be asking more questions either of the original expert or by instructing another expert. Um, mixed DNA profiles, so where you've got more than three contributors, these are incredibly complex. Um, so if um, the case is very hinged on the DNA evidence and the DNA evidence is all complex mixtures, I would definitely be thinking about whether you need to challenge that evidence further. Um, is the trace DNA relevant? So this comes down to the probative value um, of the evidence versus the prejudice that may be brought into the court if it's presented. So there are two rulings from Victoria. One is under the name of Massey, one is under the name of Wise. Um, and they are good judgments to take a look at if you're dealing with cases of trace DNA evidence. Um, and the final thing to look out for is think about whether the report answers the questions the court will be asking. And if the report does not answer those questions, seek to find the answer to those questions. So whether it be again asking the prosecution expert, what does this evidence mean? or looking for an independent expert that can help you with those answers. So it might be that you need to know more about the time since intercourse. It may be blood pattern analysis. Does the pattern of the blood help support a version of events? Um, you don't just want the DNA statistic. You want the bigger picture from the expert. And I think that's really the point, is the expert is an expert for a reason, and the court shouldn't be left to make a decision about the DNA evidence alone. Um, so just to wrap up, DNA analysis it is still a hugely valuable tool to the criminal justice system um, and you know the changes to the process, the increased sensitivity, the introduction of Starmix, they're all positives but with them come some 
do come some problems that should be highlighted. Despite DNA interpretation being more complex than ever, uh, the reports generally have um, tended towards this more simplified um, version. So often the reports you see now are tables just with statements about whether the DNA matches um, rather than a report that um, interprets the evidence. Um, caution should be taken regarding the significance of the evidence. I think we've covered off on that. And also that it's really a necessity for the expert to be the expert and not just present factual DNA evidence to the court that may be misleading. And lawyers, prosecution or defence, and we highlight that, we, we do work for prosecution too as well as defence, um, they can always seek a second opinion. So if the prosecution expert is not giving all of the information that's required, um, you can always seek an independent expert to review that information. So the DNA report itself contains very little of use to another scientist, but the case file um, that can be readily obtained by subpoena will contain pretty much 99% of what another scientist would need in order to reevaluate that evidence. So it's not always necessary. In fact, it's very rarely necessary to retest. A lot of reevaluation can be done simply from that DNA file produced by the prosecution expert. And that's, I've gone a little bit over time, that's pretty much all we can fit into one hour. Um, if any of you do have any, I can take some questions now, but if any of you do have questions after this session or people who have joined on the webinar have questions, we're always happy to take phone calls and emails to address those. Um, and also in terms of cases, if you have cases where you have queries, we always give a 30-minute consultation free of charge. We're happy to take copies of reports, take a quick look for you and have a telephone conversation about the contents of those reports and advise you on what you might want to look at and whether there's any value in instructing your own expert. So I'll leave that information up there. Do we have any questions in the room? <laughs> Yeah. Um, if bats are doing that um, analysis, are they obliged to provide both those results or are they able to actually choose which one? Yeah, they te <laughs> technically they should provide both. In that, that case actually was a Victoria case, it wasn't New South Wales, I should highlight that. But um, in the Victoria case they did present both, they just favoured and highlighted one, yeah, without a scientific basis to it. FAS, so what we do see at FAS is sometimes they will run multiple contributors, um, which we support that, where you're not sure about the number of contributors, we do advocate that, so run multiple contributors and pick the most conservative, because that gives favour to the defence, which is what we should do as scientists, we should always throw... Um, the waiting in favour of the defence, not the prosecution. Um, in those cases, they may not always be transparent with the fact that they've interpreted multiple numbers of contributors, but we've only ever seen them give the most conservative value. So it doesn't particularly concern me that they don't do that because the technical descriptions that would be required in the report would be very complex. Uh, but all of that information would be available on the file. And where we've pulled, we can pull raw data from FAST. We can ask for the original files. We've never seen any you know, hidden, <laughs> hidden results. But in theory, it should all be in the report because technically, if you conduct a test, you should disclose to the court. Yeah. But yeah, I will highlight that exclusion. Inclusion was not FAST. <laughs> so, oh, <okay>. yeah. <laughs> 
but I think that's pretty, when you get those very differing results, it's very yeah. obvious to anybody reading the report that there is an, an underlying issue yeah. with the evidence. And, and generally, with StarMix, with both the manufacturer's guidelines and with validation reports from labs that we've read, they're very um, strong in giving the opinion that if there is inconsistency or uncertainty in the number of contributors, that in fact we shouldn't even interpret that profile because we don't know and there's too much uncertainty. Um, and that's certainly something I've written in quite a few reports, is that in my belief there is too much uncertainty and we don't know which number is right. We can't know, we will never know, so, yeah. I've lost everybody else. <laughs> I know, and that was, sorry, that was speed DNA, like DNA 101, at pace, yeah. So I hope that was useful. Um, it definitely is a very basic introduction. It's very rapid fire, but hopefully if you've learned just one thing from that, it will help you in the future. So thank you.